Hello and assalamu alaikum everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Batshit. My name is Mikhail. I'm joined today by Dr. Shazia Sadaf. She is a professor of human rights and social justice in the Institute of Interdisciplinary Studies at Carleton University. She holds a PhD in English language and literature from the University of London in the UK, as well as a second doctoral degree in post-colonial studies from Western University here in Ontario. Dr. Shazia currently is working on a research monograph on contemporary Pakistani speculative fiction, which is expected to be published in the spring of this year. Thank you for so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I feel like our interests align a lot. There is a bit of overlap there. I'm, I'm also studying for a Bachelor of English uh, right now uh, in undergrad, and I'm very interested in post-colonial uh, studies and social science uh, of that region as well. So uh, this would be great to hear your perspectives. I'd like to just get into maybe some background information uh, on you. What was your career like before you came here and maybe your journey to, to Canada, to Ontario in particular as well, if you'd like to share a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I came to Canada 10 years ago. That was exactly 10 years ago, actually, February 2013. And before that, I was an associate professor of English at the University of Peshawar. So I'd held that position for a long time, uh, 18 years to be exact, before I came to Canada. The reason for coming to Canada, I'm not really sure. It just kind of happened. That was not a very good time in Pakistan from 2008 to 10-ish. Um, and including other things happening, there were there were lots of bombings going on in Peshawar in the region, like girls' schools and stuff. And also as a university professor, we were facing literal death threats every month or so. There would be a letter to the English department that we were teaching, you know, stuff that the Taliban didn't agree with. And things were things were not pretty. And my family lived in Canada and they asked me to kind of apply and it evolved. I just applied on a whim and then came here thinking I was going to be on leave from my job and I'd go back. But I didn't. And uh, yeah, and I wanted to carve a new career here. So I ha already had a PhD from the UK. I didn't want to sit around waiting for a job because that PhD was was in a very specific area and there wasn't much scope. So I went and I did a second PhD at Western in post-colonial uh, studies, uh, specializing in actually South Asian literature and uh, ended up getting a job one month after my PhD defense at Carlton. So yeah, that's that's how I ended up at Carlton. But the, there is one other interesting thing here. And that is both of my PhDs are in English, two different subject areas, but English. Um, but I'm teaching here in social sciences. So yeah, I want to I want to tell people that if you want to get into academia, for example, don't feel yourself restricted to one area because it's right. now it's all about interdisciplinarity and it's like you know how these different fields converge you know and my research was in post 9-11 human rights literature and I ended up being at the Institute of Interdisciplinary Studies teaching human rights from a discourse perspective so I'm kind of straddling two fields now from humanities and social sciences and it's just the way you market yourself when you are applying for jobs I don't think one should be restricted to a certain field nowadays because there's just so many fields are interdisciplinary so yeah I just start off with that and then maybe when you ask me another question I'll get into it again that sounds good. This has come up a lot, actually, with uh, some previous guests as well. Previous discussions I've had is uh, you, you really don't know what you're going to end up doing with the experience that you have with the yeah. subject that you've studied. Uh, there's hardly any correlation. And I see that happening on such a wide scale around me. So I guess it's you're saying it's just a, a disorientation. You just have to get over uh, yeah. and just accept 
that that's a fact. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Right. So a, a lot of actually poignant uh, aspects of your background, uh, the lack of safety in Peshawar is just something I want to touch on a little bit just because of the recent uh, incident that, yeah. that has happened back there. And it's a, it's a good reminder for our listeners that it is an, it has been an ongoing process and you uh, can attest to that. It's yeah. not just a one-time thing. Uh, and people should actually understand, in my opinion, that it's an ongoing thing and the lack of safety and, and security ha has been alarming for for quite some time. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. Um, so your first PhD was from the University of London. I just, I want to maybe talk a little bit about English itself. So was that something that you had intended to go into early on, uh, especially when you were studying in, in Pakistan or studying at a lower level? Is that the subject you wanted to go into? That was always the subject I wanted to get into. My There are a lot of writers in my family, but they're writers in Pashto and Urdu. I'm a Patan, so Pashto is my mother tongue. And in Persian, actually, my grandfather was a Persian writer as well. Writing has always been in my family, and I was always interested in literature, and that was always my first love and my first choice. Um, I had a master's from Pakistan. Actually, my story is kind of long and convoluted. I got married really young at the age of 17. I did all my studying after I got married. So I kind of, you know, when you don't want to stop studying and you're too young and you have two small boys, my husband's a surgeon. We first went to Saudi Arabia and I didn't want to stop studying. So I did, I started doing private stuff. So I did a bachelor's privately coming back from my exam in Pakistan. And then I did a master's privately from Pakistan, but that was never quite enough. And then from Saudi Arabia, we, my husband moved to Dublin, Ireland, and we went there because he's at that time, everyone was going to the UK to do their Royal College exam. So we went to Dublin first and, and then to England. And I didn't want to kind of let go. So I, I already had a master's and then I had an MPhil from Pakistan and I went and I did a second master's from King's College, University of London, because I wanted to experience that and went on to do my PhD at the University of London too, which was in an area that was just up and coming. And that was around the time when Edward Said's Orientalism came out. That makes me sound as if I'm 200 years old, but it was like, yeah, that was around the time that that book came out. And right. my master's was in what is called uh, English literature and language at the time linguistics was just about like you know that was a new area that was coming out but language was pretty much yeah it was the closest you could get ling to linguistics at that time linguistics was new but I was very interested in language because in my master's I had focused on language change during the British rule in India and I was in fact asked by my supervisor who had me meet the vice chancellor at the University of London, who was a kind of an authority on Edward, uh, on Rudyard Kipling at the time. They asked me to carry on my research in language studies, which means long and short of it is I worked at the Oriental and India office portion of the British Library with manuscripts, collecting loan vocabulary from local languages into British usage at that time and created an extensive Anglo-Indian glossary. So that was my first oh. PhD. That was so specialized that I couldn't like fit myself into any of the job positions that were advertised in Canada. That Seems was my understudied first. area as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. So that does open up a few interesting areas for me. You mentioned that linguistics was not something that was coming up. So how did you see that interest of yours come up in, in English? And how did you kind of, how were you able to adapt your interest to something like English, which is which is language related, linguistics related, but no, it's not specifically linguistics. Yeah, it's not linguistics. Linguistics was at that time, when I say new, it was like, you know, it's like maybe a decade or so old. It was emerging. Oh. I had the choice to do linguistics because I got accepted at UCL and King's both at the same time. And UCL was actually linguistics. 
linguistics. It was degree in linguistics, one of the you know new things that had come out. But I wasn't really interested in the science of language as such, or you know language and and how we learnt it and the grammatical basis of language. And I wasn't too interested in that, but I was interested in language and power because I've always been interested in that. My interest in the English language was also coupled with the interest in how English had colonized my mind as a child, because um, mm -hmm. part of colonization is colonization of your mind. Uh, it's, a, it's a linguistic colonization as well, which has happened in South Asia and Africa and everywhere else. And we still see it in Pakistan today. If you speak English, doors open for you. If you don't, they don't. You could be standing in a queue and you could jump the queue and go right to the front. And if somebody challenges you, you could turn around, speak in English and that that make them silent. Right. It still exists. It has happened to me. I, when I first learned how to drive, I bashed into somebody else's car and the man stopped and got, got off and, and kind of confronted me. And I don't know why I didn't deliberately do it, but I, I answered back in English and he backed off and he said, I'm sorry, madam, I'm sorry. And he went off. And that's just a sad thing to say, but the English is what did it. Like, you know, it's all about how we were controlled through English and, uh, you know, that legacy still exists. So in my mind, there was always, I'm studying English and everything. And I studied at a, you know, what is called a presentation convent in Pakistan, where we had nuns for teachers. And we did work with and, and and all of that while my cousins who were in Urdu medium schools didn't and we were always the superior ones so language and power and my own experiences of how that manifested itself in my life had always interested me so when I was doing my PhD at at King's, I wanted to research that. Uh, it's very interesting how loan vocabularies were taken by the British during their rule in India, long, long rule in India, where they were taking from the local vocabularies, but adapting those words to their own usage. And sometimes they were using words that we were also using, but they were using in a different and more disparaging way than ours. How many of those words ended up in the Oxford English Dictionary and were actually anglicized and how many of those words stayed different so you know that was kind of interesting for me and that language and power and borrowing of languages and all of that interested me so it was it was a very good project especially working with the oriental and india office manuscripts as like literally looking into the minds of those colonial officers and those missionaries whose diaries i was reading because at that time there was no computerization i was manually looking at manuscripts and looking at words and their usages and compiling an etymological dictionary which looked at how those words were used over a long period of time so yeah that's that's why my interest was more in that area rather than pure linguistics i feel like it's hard for people to understand or realize because of the barrier that academia puts on these things how pervasive and inherent they are to how we behave and how we act uh, especially coming from a south asian background you you talked about the way in which english makes us more powerful and how pervasive it is in our minds, the way in which we perceive English yeah. or just language in general. But I feel like a lot of students here, even in my back at home, don't necessarily give it too much value or treat it with the same seriousness because it is so, I guess, because it's so academic. I'm not sure. People don't realize or don't or kind of ignore it as yeah. something to take seriously. And they don't, yeah. like I for I for sure fell into that same trap as I rejected a lot of, you know, they see mm -hmm. drama or, or even books, yeah. even poetry it was just English medium for me all the way through, all the way until now. And now I'm starting to realize that I missed out on a lot and it's almost like I feel bad and it's guilt that's, that's encouraging me to go back and rediscover my own culture. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm a victim, I guess, of that. I don't like <laughs> to say that word, but I guess in a weird way, it's a, it has affected me as well. I'd like to, so I would like to actually go into that maybe a little bit more. Your experience studying that material. Mm -hmm. So you were able to get into the journals or the firsthand documents of missionaries and colonizers. And what were interesting things that you found there? I'm very curious. It's something I'd never thought about. Oh, yeah. There's lots of interesting things, lots of words that are that we now count as English actually come from like local words that we use. Right. So, yeah. So like even a word like shampoo is mm -hmm. from Indian or, you know, what we call like a cot, like a baby's cot is, is cot. Right, and it's yeah. like there are so many, there's so many words and they were called, at that time they were called Babuisms. Uh, from Babu it's yeah. like you know it's a I could have like a whole two-hour discussion on that alone right. with you but I don't want to kind of take over all of your time but what I do want to mention is that it's weird my journey as a professional and as a person is kind of conjoined because when I was in Pakistan I was in the same frame of mind as you know let's speak English, let's be, let's be superior, let's be better than others, kind of, it, yeah. and, and we were in that trap of um, being colonized, because like I tell my students here, I realized the colonization of my mind, ironically, when I came out of Pakistan, because when, when I was a child, we read a lot of, I have two other sisters, and we had no other way of escaping from the claustrophobic life that we had as girls in when we were young, we lived in Mardan in, and it's a very conservative area. It's like when we're not talking about Karachi or Islamabad, we're talking about like a conservative Pathan region, um, going out, just like there was, there was nothing, nowhere to go. And so you were just locked inside a house. So we read, we read and read, and that's what opened our doors. But what we read was the books on British council shelves. So we would go shelf wise and get like, you know, a pile of, we were allowed, I think three or four books each and three sisters. So we'd get like, do, do the math. We would get that many books, bring them, read them in two days, take them back and go shelf wise. And mm -hmm. um, the children's section, we read a lot of Enid Blyton. And what that did to our brains was we lived in one place physically but we our reality was more the reality of our mind so we wanted daffodils but outside there were marigolds and there was such a, a it was such a weird place to be in we kind of dreamt in in English and outside there was Pashto and when we played games we wanted to have seaside picnics but there was no seaside and there were no strawberries so we'd kind of draw strawberries color them and cut them out in paper and have mock seaside picnics you know nothing that we had was good for us we didn't like the sweetest mangoes because we wanted strawberries we hated the marigolds because we wanted the daffodils and like yeah. you know it, so we were like absolutely colonized and so unhappy with um, our real lives were the dreams inside our heads and when we woke up to our real reality, that was like a dream. It was really weird because um, so when I went for the first time to England, England was more familiar to me than actually where I came from because I'd right. read so much about nothing was new. Everything was so familiar. And and my professional life, the same. When I was when I taught in Pakistan, obviously the courses are such that I was teaching Keats and Wordsworth and Shakespeare and all of that. And I love all of that. Don't take me wrong. It's like. Mm -hmm. I loved all of that, but that's what I was teaching. And I would get a pushback, especially after 9-11 from my male students in my class in Peshawar who were, had become very conservative in the post 9-11 period because they'd all grew out beards and all started wearing kameez shalwar, whereas the class before had been like, you know, they would wear trousers and girls would wear the patas and stuff. But mm -hmm. And then they covered themselves up and they would challenge me on whatever 
we whatever we taught them. So if I was teaching Milton's Paradise Lost, they would say, but why are you talking about the Bible? And why are you talking about mm -hmm. Satan like this? And I'd say you choose. This is your choice. You wanted to do a master's in English literature. Now, you cannot decide that you don't want to learn what's in the Bible because that was your choice. But I was facing mm -hmm. that kind of challenge. So I became an advocate for, for British literature in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. When I came here, it's the opposite. Because now I'm looking at Pakistani Anglophone literature, all my research and publications, and even the book that I'm writing now is teaching students here how Pakistanis have taken the English language and they're talking back with that language and writing in that language so that it reaches you. And in a post 9-11 world, instead of writing trauma from the perspective of the people who witnessed 9-11 to writers from Pakistan who are talking about the repercussions of 9-11 from the point of view of the war on terror. So it's a it's a talking back. And now I'm advocating right. for the other side. So I've been both sides of the teaching picture, so to speak, because because now I'm teaching students here what Pakistani authors are doing and what they're saying. So I've been both sides right. and I have a very good view of, you know, how to do it. Uh, but to bridge that gap of understanding and to kind of remove that us versus them man mentality that started with actually with George Bush's speech where he set the tone for you're either with us or you're with them and ever since then it's been the us versus them divide and i think that yeah. literature makes a very good bridge between the two sides and trying to kind of help them build an understanding for each other i guess i like how that's framed uh, i felt that in myself as well uh feeling like i was in a dream there or disconnected uh, while i was back at home and then when i came here disconnected for the same reason, but the exact opposite reason at yeah. the same time and the whole guilt coming back. So a lot of that research is, like you said, a podcast in itself, maybe even a series uh, in itself. So yeah. I don't know if we have more time, hopefully we do uh, on a different day, we can do that. But you did kind of preempt my next area of questioning. How can current immigrants here, they see, or in general, first or second gen, uh, how can they overcome the colonization of their minds and kind of reconnect with their roots? Uh, yeah. What are this? Are there certain specific steps they can take? Is there no specific formula for that? <laughs> I think that part of it happens automatically. You know, when you come here, you become more Pakistani than you ever were back home. Part of it happens automatically because when you come here and you want to establish an identity, you don't. You know that you cannot immediately become a Canadian. And you cannot be identityless. So, so what happens is you you try and crawl back some of the identity that you brought with you, and you want to impress it upon people that 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 you do have an identity, that you're not just one immigrant among the many, because you don't want to just blend into the sea of immigrants who are here and people just saying, "Oh, are you an immigrant? Where are you from?" It's like you you look like you come from here, or you look like you come from there, and then you say, "No, I come from here." Mm -hmm. I have met a lot of students who are very loath to say they are from Pakistan, um, but but that's a kind of an interim period. I think that most of them then reach a point where they think, well, you know, what's wrong with me being a Pakistani and I kind of try and reclaim that identity. But that reclamation is more powerful. It's uh, you're stepping out of the colonization of, of the mind in this kind of a framework because it's a choice and you want to reclaim your identity. When you're in Pakistan, you feel you have no choice but to be a Pakistani and be sucked into whatever it is that you don't like about Pakistan. And every culture has something that you're not proud of, including Pakistanis, at least right now with the corruption that's happening and everything. You're not, nobody's like very, really very proud to be a Pakistani. But there is 
a history to being Pakistani that's valuable, that's way before, you know, all of that corruption or much deeper than the surface level things that we see said about Pakistan right now, you know, a deep cultural, you know, reality that's rich from the Indus Valley civilization to the Mughal civilization, everything that was great about us. So in reclaiming our identity here, I think that we're looking further back into the past and trying to, like you said, you know, reading other stuff or, you know, the book that I'm writing is also about what new speculative writers are from Pakistan are doing. They are democratizing, imagining the future because the future is also being imagined by the West because most of science fiction or speculative fiction is coming out of the West. And even if there is speculative and science fiction or fantastic fiction from our region, it was in Urdu, like Umru Ayar and all of those things that do not reach a wider worldwide audience without a translation. And translation never does the trick. So what yeah. recently has happened, and this is very new, in the last 10 years, we have these wonderful speculative writers at the forefront of which is Osman Malik, who's won all the major awards for speculative fiction in the last year alone, who have started saying, well, we have to say something about how the future is being imagined. And we want to imagine it in a different way. And that is also kind of fighting back for your identity. You imagine the future like this, but we imagine the future like that. You might imagine a future where it's a globalized world and Muslims become, what would you call it, more moderate. And we imagine it in an absolutely different way. Mm -hmm. uh, Muslim imagination of the future is more dependent on how Islamic eschatology controls how much of the future you should predict. In Islam, you're not supposed to predict or the future in this world is not as important as the afterlife. You're not even supposed to predict the future in Islam. So you can't palm read or, you know, read the stars or, you know, imagine what the future is like. Our future is more eschatological, like what will happen in an afterlife. And that needs to come into within the genre of speculative fiction and how we need to imagine what the future is going to be like. And claiming back your identity, all of this is part of that. So when students come here, part of it will happen like this, and part of it will happen with what they are doing in the research area that they're getting into and how much of their own identity are they imprinting on how the academia is going to imagine, you know, progress in that field in which they are. So like we're in English or, or you know, I'm in English and in social sciences thinking about human rights is thinking about the future. Um, and somebody could be in another field and would be a Pakistani student or a South Asian student and think about how they're going to democratize that field. Just like, you know, indigenous knowledge now is being reclaimed. Why do we see like indigenous cluster hires in universities here? or going back to indigenous knowledges. Because when we think about the environment and saving the environment, we go, oh, oh my God, the indigenous people were doing that ages ago because they never separate their individual human selves from the environment around them. For them, the tree is just as sacred as a human body. And now we're rediscovering, oh, maybe we need to go back and see the world the way they saw it. Because colonization wiped off knowledge and now we're reclaiming it, including our own knowledges from South Asia. And and we're also becoming better judges of the standards of how that knowledge should be measured and how success should be measured. Like you said, Muslim literature can't be seen through the lens of Judeo-Christian or Western uh, standards of perceiving the world. It should be done yeah. through Muslim standards of seeing the world. Yeah. 
that will be the measure of success for that type of literature. And so it's, that's how to negotiate that. I like that it's going in this direction and that's a great place to delve into for our next part. Maybe just as a wrap up, uh, could you talk a little bit about the new publication that you have coming up and kind of, would you say that it's important for a Desi, young Desi audience to read that and to, to follow that? Yeah, this is the first book on Pakistani speculative fiction. I was also part of the first Rutledge companion on Pakistani Anglophone literature. I had a chapter in that, which is written by my colleague, Arusa, Dr. Arusa Kaval from Islamic International University in Islamabad. This book is also a project that both of us are collaborating in. It's the first ever book on Pakistani speculative fiction. And I think that it's very important for anyone to read it. It's not just for, um, you know, students of English literature. It's very, very interesting in that I think a lot of young people are interested in reading science and speculative fiction, but specific speculative fiction that is Pakistan focused is really enchanting. And um, yeah, maybe we could have another discussion where I could direct you to some of those short stories that are winning all of the major awards. They are very much set in Pakistan. They're in Pakistani cities. I'll give you one small example. It's like, you know, there's um, a writer called Samim Siddiq who has written a very interesting story called Airbody, which is a twist on Airbnb. And he's showing a future in somewhere in 2022, 23 or something, where there's a Pakistani boy in um, in the US who is renting out his body like Airbnb, but it's it's his body so that people can. So it's a time when when we have the capacity to transfer somebody's consciousness into another body somewhere else. And his body has been hired by a middle-aged Pakistani Desi auntie that he calls her from Pakistan who hires his body for a while so that she can transfer her mind into his body and go and meet another female friend of hers because she's a lesbian and she can't do it in Pakistan. So she hires his body, goes and meets this woman. And this is how she navigates being a lesbian from Pakistan. And also she chooses to transfer into a male body so that it's not considered homosexual. It's a very complex story. It's a very complex story and it deals with everything to do with Pakistan and, and homosexuality and and how this these characters navigate yeah just from hearing about it, it really yeah just the different constraints yeah. uh, or another story by Usman Malik where there's a story from the Alif Lela in which which is called uh, the city of brass and he makes that city of brass into a mobile city that descends on top of Lahore so one fine day the people of Lahore look up and there's a floating city that comes and sits right on top of the Shalimar gardens and crushes the Shalimar gardens and that city is a city from one of the stories in Alif Lela. And then he talks about how the people of Lahore react to another city plonking itself in the middle. It's so interesting. And all of these have to do with Pakistani identities, you know, these fantastical things that happen in the future and how Pakistanis will react to it and examine, you know, the future in that way. And these are so interesting for young Pakistanis because it helps them imagine what they would do in situations like this. So, yeah, so yeah. my book is is a critical analysis of all the new stories that are coming out and what they do. This has opened up another really great area that I'd like to go into, uh, but for the next part, but I'm very excited to read uh, your publication as well as going into these books that you've recommended to me. It's great. And most of all, I'm looking forward to our next part. For now, thank you so much for joining us today, everyone. Thank you to our listeners and please stay tuned for part two, which will release next week, where we continue our discussion with Dr. Shazia Sadaf. Thank you.